0: Welcome to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is author Sandra Smith Gangle, who actually is also a second cousin once removed. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Sandra, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Patty.
0: This is really cool because, like I said, we are somehow related. So this is a little confusing, but my Aunt Mary had reached out to you, and there's a, my maiden name, on my mom's side is Powers. And there's a family connection to the Irish history of the Powers family. And my Aunt Mary had reached out to you through a Facebook group, uh, The Powers Family History, which is really cool because we're getting to find more, you know, more information going generations back. So it's really neat. And she had told me about you and said, hey, you should interview Sandra. She's got a new book and I think it's really timely for the situation in the country. And so here we are, this is really cool.
1: My mother's name was Irene Powers Smith, and she was the daughter of Frank Powers, who I believe was um the son of our common ancestor, Jeffrey Powers.
0: It's interesting because my grandma is Irene, but she was through marriage a powers. So it's it's, okay. it's kind of funny. Yeah, so she was also Irene Powers. Uh yeah, so I, it's so confusing that once, twice, third removed and all that. But I'm, I believe we're second cousins once removed because my mother's father's – my mother's grandfather's brother is your dad. So, well, if that's confusing. Anyway, so we're going to talk about your book. Uh, your book is titled Madam Arbitrator. And you were the first female arbitrator in the state of Oregon. And there it is. And anybody <laughs> listening, we're also doing video on YouTube and Facebook. So if you're listening, you can, you can listen to this in your car or whatever. Or you can stop it and go watch the video somewhere on the internet. And so, yeah, uh, I'm also going to put a plug for your website in the show notes. And so people can find out more about it. And you can go to Amazon and search for either Sandra Gangle or Sandra Smith Gangle. Or you can search for Madam Arbitrator. But I'll put links in the show notes so people can find it. Thank you. So, so the book is is fairly recent. Uh, because we're very Irish, it was released on what day?
1: <laughs> it
0: was released
1: on March 17th. Look right. in the Irish.
0: Right, St. Patrick's Day. So I also released some music. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to play a song that's dedicated to my mom. It's a cover song. And so we'll get to that at the end of the show. So... Let's start out early in your career. Um, you know, you grew up in uh, the New England area.
1: That's right. I was born in Brockton, Massachusetts. And that is a uh, blue collar town. Uh, the, um, the big attraction for employees was the uh, plethora of uh, uh, shoe factories. And so uh, a lot of immigrants had come to Brockton. Uh, between the late uh, 19th century and the 1920s. Uh, And we had little neighborhoods of uh, Italians and Swedes and uh, Lithuanians uh, and Irish. Um, And um, the town was just featured by these uh, ethnic neighborhoods. Uh, And I grew up seeing uh, the, the... the way that people lived and worked in factories
0: right really like blue blue collar hardworking. you know didn't make a ton of pay i'm sure so so then you uh went to high school there and you had a t- uh, counselor that you so your dream was to pursue law
1: uh, right it, and i can tell you why i i had that dream
0: i'd love to hear that yeah
1: it started when i was a child um, my parents uh, separated after my fa- father came back from uh, World War II, and so my, uh, my mother was a single parent, which was rather unusual in those days. There was a, um, a, a feeling, a public feeling of uh, rejection to what they called broken homes, so I felt this. I also had to go to court a couple of times with my mother in the course of the proceedings involving custody and visitation, and I wanted justice uh, for my parents in, in what they were going through. But what I observed bothered me. All the men were, i mean, all the lawyers and judges were men. There were no women, and I felt that they were not listening to my mother, and this bothered me. So I made a commitment early, about age eight, that I would change things, that I would be a lawyer. And then later on as a teenager, this feeling came back to me because we had been in an auto accident, and that is detailed in my book, where the responsible driver, the other driver, lied when the police came. And therefore, uh, we ended up in litigation over who was responsible for my injuries, and so I had to be a plaintiff and testify in a court proceeding before a jury, and I had to watch my lawyer as he skillfully conducted the uh, the litigation on on my behalf. And uh, at the, during that hearing, I thought to myself, "He just asks a lot of questions. I could do that." Right. I should be a lawyer I want to be a lawyer and I want justice and I want especially justice for women so that's that was kind of my commitment as a a young child and teenager
0: that's cool and so then in high school you would kind of talk to a counselor and you were gonna pursue it and how did that come about where they basically discouraged you was it because you were a woman
1: yes unfortunately the timing was not right I was in high school, I graduated in 1960, and of course, we still had uh, discrimination against women and in the, the workplace at that time. Uh, there still were no women uh, in the legal profession unless their fathers or grandfathers happened to be lawyers or or judges. So when my co- counselor asked me what I wanted to study in college, I told her, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to study law. She scowled and she said, well, you know, if, if you go and you go through all those years of study and get a law degree, you won't be able to get a job except as a secretary. And you could do that right out of high school. She said, you're a good student. And uh, there are other things that you can do. And she said, so I don't recommend that you go into law, I I think teaching would be a good career for you. And so she persuaded me that because I was good in foreign languages, that maybe I should study foreign languages in college and become a foreign language teacher.
0: Right. And you know, I mean, in her defense, I'm sure that it hurt to hear that. But at the same time, she was probably trying to protect you. And it's unfortunate but I'm glad you didn't take defeat, you know, that, you're, that you did that later. Now, you had mentioned going to school to become a teacher and that's what brought you to Oregon. So you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, my undergraduate was on the East Coast. I went to the College of New Rochelle, a women's college in New York, and I studied French and German. And, and I really thought being in New York and being close to the United Nations building, Uh, that maybe someday I could be a translator for the United Nations. But, you know, I found out that uh, the people that got those jobs were from the international community, and many of those people spoke two, three, four languages. Uh, So the chances that I would be able to become uh, an interpreter were very slim. Uh, But teaching was certainly uh, still an option. And I was hired in my hometown of Brockton, to teach uh, conversational French at the middle school level. So I did that for two years. And in the course of those two years, I was fortunate to be selected to attend uh, the programs that were specializing at that time in training teachers how to use the audio-lingual method to teach uh, foreign languages. Before that time, teachers always had students memorize vocabulary and translate passages and read and translate, but not ever speak the language.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. But
1: the new audiolingual method, which really had been fostered by uh, President Eisenhower, uh, because he believed in fo- finding peaceful ways of solving problems. And so he encouraged Congress to uh, pass the National Defense Education Act. So these programs were offered through congressional funds through the National Defense Education Act. And my my first uh, institute under this program was at Notre Dame University in 1965, no, 1964. And then a year later, 1965, I was selected by the University of Oregon to participate in its program, which was conducted in France. So I spent the summer in France. And during that program, of course, I became acquainted with the staff and faculty from the University of Oregon. So in conversations with them, I told them that I was thinking of uh, going back to school and getting my master's degree so that I could teach at the college level. And uh, they encouraged me to apply to the University of Oregon, which had an excellent program in foreign languages at the time. They said, we can't guarantee anything for you, but you would certainly be Good consideration for uh, financial assistance. So I did. I applied and was given a, a teaching assistantship at the University of Oregon. And I, uh, at that point, said to my mother, "Mom, you've always wanted to go out west. You've always wanted to uh, to be free of Brockton and the problems of the past. Come with me. We'll have a new life in Oregon." My brother was a freshman in college at that time, and so he came with us. The three of us were like pioneers coming across the country, right. and we arrived in Eugene, Oregon, in late June of 1966.
0: Which uh, I'm sure in Eugene during that time was a pretty wild time, you know. You well, know.
1: <laughs> it actually uh, it was. Uh, I, I loved it.
0: Oh, it's great. <laughs> I mean, and I mean that in a positive. There was just a lot of culture, you know, and. And yeah, the counterculture brewing, which when you're in college, that is, even if you're not involved in it, it's really exciting because you you yes. can learn so much about humanity. And so we still see that today. I've lived in Eugene since I was 11 and Oregon my whole life. And we, you lived in Salem as well for quite a few years. And we'll talk about that as well. But yeah, I mean, there's something about Oregon. I've never left, uh, but everybody that I've talked to says it's like a vortex. If you leave, then you're going to come back. <laughs> you know, it's just too hard to get away. And
1: I know the first day that I arrived in Oregon that I was going to stay. I loved the scenery, oh, the mountains, yeah. the wide open spaces. Uh the first thing I bought in Eugene was a pair of hiking boots. And I signed up with at the University of Oregon uh for um, weekend uh hikes in yeah. the cascades.
0: And it's cool that a college would even offer those types of courses, you know. So that's that's pretty cool. So then uh you received your law degree from Willamette. So after getting your master's at Oregon, you then worked as a teacher, is that, is that correct? Teaching friends? Yes,
1: when I got my master's, uh, I was hired at uh, Oregon State University uh, to teach uh, wonderful advanced courses. As it happened, a, the head of the department had had an injury and uh, was unable to, to teach. They didn't know whether he would uh, ever come back. But they did not want to look for uh, someone with a Ph.D. as a a permanent position because this head of department might recover sufficiently to come back. So I was the perfect choice for them. I was a strong uh, student in foreign languages and I had just earned my master's degree and had the recommendation of the University of Oregon staff. And so they hired me. And it was a wonderful position uh, that, I, uh, that I just loved. So I moved to Corvallis. My mother stayed in Eugene at that time. She was working for the, Salem, for the uh, Eugene School District and was uh, very happy uh, living in, in Oregon. I moved to uh, Salem and met my husband, Eugene, and then he got a job teaching at uh, uh, Corvallis High School So after our engagement, uh, a few months after our engagement, we were able to plan our wedding uh, in uh, December of 1968. And then um, a couple years later, he got a a better job in the Salem School District. So we moved to Salem and I was still commuting to Corvallis, but I knew it would be uh, always temporary. So when an opening came up at Willamette, I took that and I taught... Uh, at Willamette. Meanwhile, I had my daughter, um, Melanie, and then my son, Rocky. So I was teaching and being a mother all at the same time, very busy with right. life. But I never forgot my early commitment that I, what I really wanted was to practice law. So I, I was aware that the Congress had passed Legislation in 1964 called the uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, through a a miracle, really, uh, the word sex was included as one of the protected classifications uh, under the statute. It was a statute that was originally designed to prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, national But... Some, a legislator put in the word sex at the last minute with the expectation that that would kill the bill. Well, it didn't kill the bill. Oh,
0: wow. I didn't as know result, that.
1: As a result, the whole disc- issue of dis- uh, discrimination against women
0: changed. Wow.
1: Slow. It was a slow progress, but by the mid seventies, it was really reaching down into uh, the legal profession and medical profession and so forth. And, I was pushing my children in a stroller across the campus one day, and I happened to notice that a group of women was going into the law school. And I thought, yes, women are now entering law, and that means that there are jobs and there was there's a future for me. And so I told my husband that uh, it was the time was ripe, and I would like to enroll in uh, law school. I was 34 years old
0: wow i want to touch on that comment that you or that that part of that i did not i was not aware of that in the civil rights uh bill that that was thrown in as an attempt to have it not go through that says something, exactly because, you know a lot of people don't realize and i'm not super versed on history i'll be the first to admit it but a lot of people don't realize that that women did not receive the right to vote until after people of color which is really interesting i mean there's some is that true that's true right i mean Well,
1: well, men of color received the right to vote in uh, 1870. Yeah. Women of color, just like women, white women, could not vote.
0: Yeah.
1: It was the suffragists, the women suffragists, who had to fight a very long battle for 70 years before it finally went through, the uh, 19th Amendment went through. And I just finished reading a book last night, which recently came out, called The Woman's Hour by Elaine Weiss. I recommend it strongly, because um, it gives the details of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. You know, there there have to be 30, there have to be a a three-fourths vote in the state legislatures to ratify something once Congress has uh, passed a um, uh, an amendment to the Constitution. And Tennessee was the 36th state to ratify it. And so, and it was not an easy process. Um, it was uh, extremely contested, not only by men, but by women called the Ants, who were, they didn't want to go to vote. They thought it was, uh just wrong for women to want to be involved in the, in the
0: in their own yeah their so own. it's a
1: very good book
0: and yeah, that's that's you it. Should yeah. read it one more time what was that book called
1: uh The Woman's Hour by yeah. Elaine
0: Weiss. Cool that's a good plug so if anybody's interested after you they read your book of course. No <laughs> no but so uh you know Willamette High School Salem you fell in love with Salem became your home and then when you did get your law degree you did something a little different. So instead of going to work for someone else, you did work for someone else for a short time, correct? But then you started your own law practice.
1: I worked for someone else only as an intern. Uh, I I worked uh, for a, a, a local firm uh, and they were extremely helpful and uh, they didn't just um, make me run around and serve process on parties and file the mail. Sure. They actually had me writing, doing research and writing in their cases. So I learned a great deal about the subject matter, the areas that I wanted to practice in myself. Uh, I wanted to, my my goal was to open my own office and to be a sole practitioner. I did not want to just work for a firm and uh, get a salary and do what I was told to do. I wanted to represent real people in the community in problems. And so, uh, yes, I was fortunate to have uh, an internship while I was in law school where I got that kind of training. I also interned, and this is in my book in great detail, uh, with one of the professors at Willamette Law School. Uh, His name was Carlton Snow, who was a very well-respected arbitrator in the Pacific Northwest. And um, he knew that I was interested in employment issues. I had uh, been taking all of the courses that were offered in uh, labor relations, uh, arbitration, uh, labor law, and contracts, uh, and that I wanted to be involved in the uh, elimination of dis- discrimination. I wanted to represent clients who were alleging discrimination in employment. Uh, so he took me on as, as an intern and uh, In my book, I detail to a great extent um, uh, the advice that he gave me uh, that was very, very, very helpful in my own formation of my
0: career. So when you formed your own practice, what kind of stuff were you doing primarily?
1: I did, uh, I I never did criminal work. Uh, I decided early on that I would just do civil work. Uh, And so, you know, uh, there were opportunities uh, to represent people who were being committed to the Oregon Mental Hospital uh, and who did not have the money to um, represent themselves. And so um, that was one f- source of where I you know, was basically on appointment by the court to represent clients uh, who were uh, being uh, committed uh, to, the, to the hospital and who were objecting to their commitment. Um, But in addition to that, I represented people who wanted me to write wills, land sale contracts, um, and I let it be known to other lawyers in the community that I was interested in representing people who were alleging uh, employment discrimination. This was an area that um, was not very um, popular among lawyers because it was risky and it was um, very hard to find a case that really was a uh, a good case that had promise and that um, that lawyers were were willing to to take the risk of spending their time on. So I got a lot of appointments and uh, you know, referrals for those. And those are some of my early cases are uh, outlined in my book. Right. Uh, that's how I got my start at, my start in uh, the employment area, but, no, but the- areas that I actually wanted to focus on were the employment uh, issues and also land use, since uh, that was uh, uh, certainly a uh, a big issue at the time. Uh, I heard one of your speakers, um, one of your earlier interviews, um, that was interested in land use. And he, he talked about the land use law. Well, the land use law, the uh, Oregon's goals, uh, had just been passed in 1973. And they were still working their way through the courts and were um, certainly a a very hot issue in Oregon. And so uh, really, I was one of the early lawyers that was involved in uh, those cases.
0: You mentioned Thomas Fiorelli, and that he was one of the Talked about housing in Lane County and man, he is passionate. This is what I love, to, you know, about what I do is I get to meet people and learn more about it. Now, your book is called Madam Arbitrator. So tell me what you would say an arbitrator does. And I have a couple follow-up questions about some of the what we see in today's arbitration where the system is stacked against people, even today. So, first of all, tell me a little bit about what you know an arbitrator does. When you were working in law, would you call yourself what is it? how does somebody become an arbitrator specifically?
1: It's a long-term process. You, uh, there is no actual, uh, there's no formal training program. Uh, some, there are some programs nowadays through American Arbitration Association and through Cornell uh, Law School and that sort of thing. But in my day, no, it was a matter of uh, developing your expertise, Uh, in labor relations, and then establishing credibility among the labor relations practitioners. And that's two groups, the union representatives and the management representatives. And once they trusted you, once they understood that uh, that you really understood the labor law and what a collective bargaining agreement was all about, and that you were fair, that you were not biased in favor of unions or biased in favor of management. You could be trusted to listen to the evidence and to make a fair decision uh, like a judge would in court. Uh, Then you can be approved by the bodies that that, uh, approve uh, parties as arbitrators. And so, yeah, the first step for uh, an Oregonian was to be approved by the Oregon uh, Employment Relations Board. Uh, and they manage, or they are the body that governs the uh, labor relations issues for the public workers. In other words, the teachers, the police officers, the firefighters, uh, public employees. And uh, so you first, usually your first few cases are within you know, you know your own state. Right. Uh, then once you have that kind of approval, you go to the federal agency, which is the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, and then they do the same thing. They approve arbitrators based upon their experience, their uh, history, their credibility with the parties, uh, and put your name on lists that go out to the parties. In private sector cases, that means industry.
0: Right. So, so the thing, real take, quick, it's, it's, a pro,
1: it's a process. It's a gradual
0: process. Right. So the thing that... So when I think arbitrator, a lot of times, what it should mean is impartial. Like you just said, it should mean somebody exactly. on both sides and they can really work towards finding a solution that can work for everybody, which we're going to touch at the end of this. I have a couple questions I want to talk about the current landscape in society, but we'll get to that. But the thing I wanted to touch on is that in today's world, a lot of people aren't aware. I watched a really good documentary called Hot Coffee, and it was about tort reform. And there was this whole thing about arbitration agreements in it. And what happens nowadays when you sign a uh, contract for your iPhone or for any anything you sign, or employment even when you get a job, you sign a contract for the employment there that that sometimes waives your right to a uh, impartial arbitrator, where the arbitrator is chosen by the employer. And this is a this is horrible that this happens because what that means is that. Say that you go to work for, I don't want to throw a company under the bus, so we'll just say a corporation, (laughs) okay? And so you go to work for this corporation, and they then, if there's a conflict, they are the ones that get to pick the arbitrator. And if they're on the payroll of that company, that can be a conflict of interest. And so a lot of times, so it sounds to me like what your passion was in is truly representing the people or the management or, you know, or the unions. Not, well is, is not representing either one is finding the, the resolution between the two, like the media. Okay.
1: You have raised a very important issue and I need to, I need to describe the the difference. Okay. The, I I never accepted any cases in what's called employment arbitration. And I, explain that clearly in the uh, one, I believe it's the last chapter of my book. Um, because I had misgivings about the things involved. And I don't want to- I don't want to
0: mislead anyone either. Sorry but if that's the way it was, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, uh, those agreements, what are called employment agreements are unilaterally drafted by the employers. And then they are presented to the employees when the employee is hired. And they are told, you know, oh, by the way, we have a dispute resolution process here, and we want you to sign this before you can start Monday morning. And under or, under Oregon law now, um, the employer has to do that. I believe it's 48 hours before the employee is actually uh, hired. In other words, they 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 don't they they're given a a period of time to read it and probably. Talk to their family or hopefully talk to their lawyer yeah. about it. But uh, in the past, no, it was just handed to you. Sometimes it was just included in like a booklet that was given. There'll be these, yeah. these policies that, that the, uh, the company lives by. Uh, okay, that's a wholly different process.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm
1: clear. Wholly different from what I was involved in, which was labor arbitration.
0: Okay.
1: For arbitration. The um, union and management negotiate their labor contract. And the contract includes provisions for wages, hours, terms and conditions of employment, and usually a dispute resolution provision. In the dispute resolution provision, they agree to have a grievance procedure, where if the employee feels that something has been uh, done improperly by management, they can file a grievance. The representatives of union and management try to resolve it among themselves. And if they're unable to resolve it, then they submit it to arbitration and they jointly select their arbitrator. It's not just selected
0: yeah. by the employer. That's so important, you know, with Okay,
1: that's the process that I was always involved with. That's the process that I believe has uh, the, the best credibility and that and basically you have a law of the case that you can apply the the law of the case is the collective bargaining
0: agreement yeah and see this is a, the and again as an arbitrator you try to be impartial or are impartial and so exactly you have to be this is the true benefit of unions in a lot of t- cases because the labor argument they have to do their job they, they have to make they have to make their money. They make profits. That's what they're in business for. The, the unions are to protect the employees. So when people get a job, and I know that I understand and I want to make it clear that that's not the work you did is employment arbitration. But I just want to touch on it so that people are aware, so maybe they can do their own research, that when you get a job and you are – especially if it's an entry-level job or low-level job – uh, maybe I don't want to say unskilled. I don't like that term. But someone gets a job, they they a lot of times waive their right to any type of impartial arbitration. So I really want people to do a little bit of research on that separately from this. Um, the documentary was, Hot, is Hot Coffee is an incredible documentary. It's an HBO documentary, so I think it's on Xfinity on demand and Netflix and all that. So, but the,
1: the situation has even been aggravated this past year uh, by some uh, Supreme Court decisions. Which authorized these employment arbitration procedures to um, sub, sub, substitute for courts in cases that used to have to go to court, like uh, employment discrimination, uh, you know, racial, race dis, race discrimination, sex discrimination, age discrimination, uh, and even uh, cases involving uh, wages, with, yeah. uh, like, uh, uh, overtime, that sort of thing. Uh, and if once you had signed this particular agreement, then they uh, you had agreed that those cases would no longer go to court. If you had a claim like uh, on one of those issues, it would have to go to a private Arbitrate. Yeah. and it's
0: something people don't process. aren't aware of it's, it's they get a job where they're making maybe you know 10% over minimum wage i'm not going to say the number because it changes over decades you know because of the cost of living but people will get a job and then and then they they basically are signing away their civil rights and they don't realize it and then you what are you going to do because you need this job to pay your rent and all that kind of stuff but i don't want to go too deep into that because like you said you were not focused on employment arbitration labor and and, and union which There's a joke I heard about a union. I'll throw this in and then we'll move on. But one time, and it was during the Tea Party movement, and it said there's three guys sitting at a table. There's a union boss, a corporate CEO, and a Tea Party voter. And the corporate CEO, and there's a dozen cookies between them. The corporate CEO grabs 11 cookies and says, that union guy is trying to take your cookie. (laughs) So it's like a pro-union joke, I guess. But uh, anyway, so moving on. So the book, March 17th. It came out, uh, Madam Arbitrator. It, it talks about a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, kind of how your origins in the law career and what made you passionate about it. One of the things, if you go to your website, which the link is going to be in the show notes, as I mentioned before, uh, the subtitle of the book is Working Towards Social Equality and Employment Justice. Now, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, that's basically my philosophy, uh, I really believe that um, we need to be, uh, we need to have fairness. Uh, we need to uh, treat people based upon their their qualifications and who they are as as persons, uh, their values, their their morals, uh, not their race or their age or theirs or their gender. Um, that uh, therefore. I think that so many of the issues that right now are uh, so public uh, that they have been, I think people's awareness has been uh, raised uh, by issues that just came out since my book came out. Um, And I think that um, that's been really my focus for many, many years, Uh, social equality. and employment justice. And we
0: kind of mentioned employment justice already. We talked about that, that you, know, you right. try to be somebody that's impartial, that can, that can you know, because obviously there's, there's both sides to this uh, you know, disagreement when it comes to the, the unions and the labor, because the labor management, because they have to both do their parts, you know, to right. unions protect. And, and
1: I also point out in the, the, in the last chapter of my book that I am very troubled by the downturn in unionization in in our country because uh, I did believe that unions were uh, a very strong factor in the middle-class life that my generation was able to achieve uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that has gradually deteriorated. And so my children, and uh, other young people now uh, just simply cannot acquire their own, uh, the way of life that I was able to achieve.
0: Right, well you had mentioned, and these are my words, (laughs) you had mentioned Eisenhower. And one thing I talk about a lot on the show is a time that America was great in people's, you know, in quotations there, in people's minds, was a time when unions were very strong. And unions went to bat for the employees and for the people. And so people had a living wage that could support a family on one income, which is unheard of today. And then also you had record high corporate taxes so that the businesses, it was like 80% or something crazy. Now it's like 15, but it was so that people could business owners would have to make a decision at the end of the year when they were going to do taxes, they would then compensate their employees. Like they would take care of their employees. So employees had such a better way. So they're getting fed this, this whole thing. Let's make America like it was back then when in all reality, the, the one side has destroyed any like, you know, resemblance of that. And it started with, with Reagan. And it's continued on today, trickle down economics. It just doesn't work. And I know you're not Uh, partisan politics, but that is, it's crazy how people say that Eisenhower from what I've done research was somebody that, really wanted to make the the country the best for as many possible people, and that should be all of our goal
1: right it's, and you know you you mentioned uh, the, the the power of uh, of the corporate uh, corporations um, one, one of the points that I make in my book is that um the 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 wage in uh separation between uh, the wage earners and the corporate managers and owners and investors, it has gradually spread uh, to dramatic levels. And, uh, and I, I, this troubles me. Oh, yeah. Because, um, there, there is no need for the, um, the higher management people to have such a huge advantage financially over the workers who create the work, basically, that makes their jobs possible. It troubles me because uh, in the history of of unions, the way that unions operate is they have to sit down at the table with management and explain their needs and the the work that they do. There's a sharing of, there's a discussion where management learns more about their workers. um, And they have to acknowledge the, the, the value of the work that's done. And they have to disclose the uh, the profits. Uh, they have to show how the business is using the, the money that, that comes in. Without the unions being involved, without that coll- collective bargaining negotiation process, um, they can hide things. They, they can pretend that, um, you know, we just can't afford this. And we can get workers from wherever that will do things for less. And so that's all we're going to pay. They just... Don't listen, and that just creates more and more uh, division. And uh, also, it it hurts. It hurts the the workers uh, that they are not valued.
0: Their value and their psyche. So that actually gets a good segue into one question I wanted to touch on about arbitration in everyday life and in normal society, because what happens with racial and gender equity—that is something that we need so desperately in this country—is. Is that people need to be brought? It, people say, okay, equality. Well, equality is not enough. We need equity for people that have been marginalized. So, what that means is that, like you just touched on in labor discussions, it actually transfers over very much so into everyday life because what we need is we need people to come together and hear each other's experiences. And so that they can then see not only their value, but their similarities. And so this is where it gets lost in corporations that are not people. That's why corporations should not be considered people. And that was the, probably one of the lowest points in our country recently is Citizens United or whatever it's called, where it, brought, it basically gave speech to the corporations and it squashes the people because they, just act, they can outspend us as individuals. And so it's really frustrating. So I guess my question is, do you, do you see – are you optimistic that we will find leaders in society that can be quote unquote arbitrators that can basically kind of listen to both extremes when we live in a society where people have just had enough, people are almost done listening to the other side because they feel that the other side is not listening to them, you know, and that's where we need to find leadership in, in an arbitration or collective bargaining type process. You know, I don't know. That's a long winded question, but.
1: Well, I think that you, um you're struggling to uh apply a process that uh has been implemented in the employment area where there are, is a union contract you're you're attempting to apply that to society and the 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 comparability is the law uh you know we have already a justice system with law, the the law is designed to protect the people. And we choose our representatives from the people to make the law and then to apply the law. So uh, the equivalent of a lawyer, of, of of an arbitrator in society, is a judge. Now, I think that what you are talking about is how do we find a way for someone who's not necessarily a judge who's gonna decide who's right or wrong and, and issue some kind of an, an award, but sure. someone who's going to try to help them to listen to each other and yeah. collaborate to find processes that will work better. Uh, and I think that is more of a uh, the, the process called mediation. Yeah. And we we do have now a growing cadre of mediators who are skilled at doing exactly what you were talking about, of bringing people together. In my book, I explain that in my career, I wore many hats. As a a lawyer, I wore the lawyer hat. I was an advocate. When I represented a client, I spoke for that client. I fought for that client against someone else. Okay, That's the role of an advocate, lawyer. When I was an arbitrator, I put on my judge hat, and I looked at the law which was the collective bargaining agreement. I listened to the evidence that came in. These what the parties told me and I had to listen carefully to both sides because sometimes it really sounds like one side has got the entire case in a bag but you have to then wait and listen to what's coming in from the other side because that can change the whole focus of what you have heard from the first, first side of, and then you make a decision. So that's the arbitrator role. But the mediator role is neither of those. The mediator has no power to make a decision. The mediator is not applying a law. The mediator is helping parties to listen to each other and to establish a process where neither side is is taking advantage of the other and either side is monopolizing all the time and resources. But they're, they're working together with a common good faith, it has, sure. it has, it has a requirement, they, they have to react in good faith, um, with the goal of reaching some kind of a reasonable decision. And usually that means a compromise. Yeah. I, don't compromise.
0: That's such a good way to put it. I really appreciate that because this is why I love what I do because doing this show, I get to learn so much about people and what they're passionate about. And it allows me to grow as an individual because that you you nailed it because like you just said, it's like with arbitration, you're making a decision. With yes. mediation, you get the two sides and all you're trying to do is then listen to them and then probably explain what you've heard and then they can hear that and then they have to come to their own decision. You know, and so... I guess I'm just, all of us are thriving so much in society to find leadership that we can turn to where it can, it can kind of paint a picture for both sides. And so we can find common ground, you know, uh, with protests, it's hard for people to wrap their head around when they see people marching in their streets or, or, or in front of their, their businesses and whatnot. And I know that's not what we're talking about today, but sometimes it's, it, it invokes fear and people are like kind of shutting in and right now we need to be opening up. And so it's really difficult for us to all come together. So I just, I know that we need leadership, but anyway.
1: If I could could give you a couple of examples of of mediation. Sure. I did a lot of mediation involving uh, persons with disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Because as you know, um, the businesses, business community uh, was troubled when they were suddenly required to put ramps in for uh, wheelchairs and to uh, hire uh, interpreters for uh, deaf deaf people. And you know there were many many uh, uh, steps that were that seemed to be an unnecessary expense because uh, how many people right. chairs would be would they be serving anyway? Uh, but and they also had. The the fear that if they didn't uh, immediately spend lots of money and make lots of changes, uh, that they would be sued and that they would have to pay lots of damages. Uh, so there was fear that that was uh, rampant, and what uh, uh, what was put in place was a process whereby um, parties who were persons with disabilities who had some kind of a complaint, could file a complaint, and the uh, uh, the complaint would be processed through the US Department of Justice. And both parties would be asked, would you would be willing to mediate this case, to submit to a mediation to discuss the, the, the complaint before it is investigated and submitted to uh, a decision maker who might ish might award damages. Right. And invariably, the parties said yes. The, it, as it turns out, the, the main goal of the complainants in those cases is to get access to the business that they have filed a complaint against.
0: They're not looking for damages.
1: They're looking to do business there,
0: you know? And to be treated like everybody else, you know, so- Right, so
1: I had had a number of those cases. And what I found was that by sitting down with me, the the business then would be listening to this person that had 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 difficulty uh, either getting in the front door of the business, getting up the stairs, uh, or communicating in some fashion. Um, and they would empathize. They would empathize with the needs of that person. And they would say, well, let's see, what, what would be, what would you need? And they would ask, ask questions that would then help to help them to know, how can we make the changes to our bathroom or our uh, processes that would make it more uh, welcoming to you. And usually they would agree to hire an architect or a contractor who would come in and make whatever changes uh, would be necessary to uh, accommodate not only that particular person, but other similarly situated people. And oftentimes what they found was that not only were they helping Person in a wheelchair, or a, an elderly person, uh, or a blind person—they were helping a mom pushing a baby carriage, or uh, families that were that were having similar difficulties, where nobody was uh, particularly disabled, but they were they they were disadvantaged by the particular barrier that had been uh, affecting the person with a disability. So by listening and by looking. Uh, creatively at problems instead of using fear and shutting the door. Right. Uh, uh, things were improving as a result of the Americans with Disabilities Act.
0: Right. So I want to encourage anybody listening to or watching to go to the website in the show notes. Uh, it's got your, your, the link is in the show notes for your website. It explains more in depth and it's got some testimonials about your book from some people in our community Uh, I, the last question that I have before I play a song and we get out of here is, you know, who you want to, who you want to read your book, obviously everyone in the world so that you can sell as many copies as possible, but no, there's a, there's kind of a target audience a little bit. You, you, and you can kind of touch on that.
1: Well, I think that the, the main, my main uh, purpose is to uh, give some guidance to young, young people who Uh, are looking to uh, enter a career that they believe is either closed to them or uh, that they just don't understand, and they feel that they'll never be able to uh, achieve acceptability and get work in. And especially, I think, people of color. I'm, I'm concerned about people of color getting into the legal profession, and especially in into uh, the fields that I was able to get into arbitration and mediation uh, because those fields are still heavily dominated by white males we the white females have managed to get in uh, the door but we still don't don't have a great uh, strong uh, percentage either but the certainly the persons of color are still struggling to enter and I think that they uh, I would encourage young people who are uh, intelligent, who like to read, who like to, uh, uh, to, to write and be involved in uh, uh, legal and uh, academic issues uh, to, to not just give up and, and do something else because they think that they'll never be able to get into the field. Uh, I, I believe that by following some of the uh, guidelines and, and steps that I took, uh they they will they will uh give it a try and we will see the numbers increase i also want to encourage the decision makers themselves to be mentors to welcome uh, young people of color and to give them the hope and the uh the uh, skills that they need in order to uh, get into these careers
0: well that 's pretty great, so it sounds you know your story is very inspiring and it's it 's obvious in the way that you would tell it that it 's been very fulfilling for you, so it has It is a real pleasure to meet you uh formally because we 're family essentially it 's kind of crazy <laughs> and I, I am going to Ireland in March, and now that we are acquainted uh you know we 'll be keeping track of each other on social media and 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 i 'll touch back with you. Down the road and see how the, the book is going and because and, I know you're doing the circuit now you're kind of getting the word out about it. So this has been a cool opportunity to get to know you and I look forward to having a good friendship with you. And so thank you very much. Uh, you know, Madam Arbitrator Sandra Smith Gangle. It's it's really great to finally meet you and i know mary's watching shout out to mary ball my aunt for for making this happen and so uh i want to end this with a song that is dedicated to my mom and it's 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 a real bummer for me that my mom never got to meet you because she would have she would have adored you and so this whole thing happened because of her because i wanted to when when you had reached out to me and i i opened your website The first thing that I saw was what you just touched on 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 who should read the book, and I was like, to me as a podcaster, I was like jackpot because this is the kind of stuff I reached I wanted to do. I wanted to tell stories of the underrepresented because, like you said, not doing criminal work that's flashy. That's really you know people that that draws eyeballs. Doing arbitration, doing you know mediation, even though that wasn't your area, which we touched on, but it's something that's so crucial to what makes a a society. And so. I think it's cool that we can learn a little bit more about that today. And so, so I thank you for that. And my mom would have and been, I, would have been and I thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. So we're going to end this with a song. This is a cover song of the Rose. So this is me, Patty Rose with the Rose. Sandra, thanks again. Thank you.
2: Some say love, love, love. it is a river that drowns. Tender reed, some say love. say love. Never takes things a chance. It's the one who. Nine, nine. that with the sun's love in the spring becomes the road.